Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. Spring has finally arrived, casting a rejuvenating ray of hope as the days grow longer and the weather becomes milder. With the season of renewal upon us, it's the perfect time to explore fresh ideas, embrace new beginnings, and engage in enlightening discussions. So grab your favorite beverage, find a comfortable spot, and join me as we embark on another thought-provoking journey. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Women in Canada make up less than a third of elected officials, and that's bad for everyone. And yes, that means men too. Having women in elected positions leads to more inclusive and equitable representation, diverse perspectives, and better overall governance, ultimately benefiting society as a whole. Sherry Graydon, founder of Informed Opinions, is committed to changing our political landscape and has launched balanceofpower.ca to help women attain power to drive positive change in their communities and improve the lives of more Canadians. I am thrilled to share a new partnership at What She Said with care to know CareToKnow.ca is a free resource where Canadians receive the latest health information, updates on new and existing treatments, and advice from Canadian doctors via email. Over the next six months, we'll take a closer look at seasonal allergies and asthma, skin care, diabetes, weight management, and menopause. But today, we're going to share how CareToKnow works with Dr. Christine Palme so you can stop going down rabbit holes with Dr. Google. And Brody is back with another big Saturday Night at the Movies, and this week Kiefer Sutherland is back in Rabbit Hole, a new series on Paramount. Gabrielle Basso stars as a low-level FBI agent pulled into non-stop action in Netflix's new The Night Agent. And director Jean-Christophe Klotz's thrilling history of Hollywood's part in bringing Nazi war criminals to justice in Filmmakers for the Prosecution, an adaptation of Sandra Schulberg's monologue and an urgently important documentary. Next up, Anne is back with an interview with Julian Assange's dad and brother, John and Gabriel Shipton. Julian is perhaps the most famous hacker in the world and remains in London's tough Belmarsh prison, awaiting possible extradition to the U.S. to face trial for espionage. If convicted, he faces 175 years in prison. His crime? Leaking videos of U.S. military war crimes against Iraqis, provided to him by soldier Chelsea Manning and published on WikiLeaks. Assange's father, John Shipton, and brother Gabriel continue to lobby for his release, citing freedom of the press as Assange's mental and physical health continue to deteriorate. Don't miss this interview. I love a great whodunit, which is why I was so thrilled to catch up with Amy Stewart, author of the newly released A Death at the Party from Simon & Schuster. Amy joins me to share how she kept the pace nonstop in this day-in-a-life story that will have you on the edge of your seat and guessing to the bitter end who the victim will be. Finally, food waste in Canada remains a huge problem. In fact, Canada is the worst in the world for throwing away food. Think about that. Our small little nation is number one for all the wrong reasons. Part of the problem are those best before dates which muddy the waters for consumers about food safety. Lori Nickel, CEO of Second Harvest, joins me to clear the air. It's another full week at what she said with interviews that empower, educate, and entertain. 
So let's jump in right now on 105.9 The Region. Canada, women make up less than a third of elected officials. It's well past time that we address it. Thankfully, my next guest is helping to lead the charge. Sherry Graydon is the founder of Informed Opinions, a charitable nonprofit amplifying the voices of women and gender diverse people to make Canada more democratic. Through her organization, Sherry and her team conduct research documenting the underrepresentation of women in media and politics and deliver engaging and empowering presentations to make clear the consequences of our collective failure to ensure women hold a balance of power. She joins me now. Welcome to what she said, Sherry. Thank you. So when it comes to politics in particular, why do you think women are so underrepresented? Well, centuries of oppression and uh, not having earned the vote or, or lobbied effectively for the vote until, uh, you know, the early 1900s. That's certainly part of the legacy. Um, the ongoing uh, burden that women carry and the responsibilities that we continue to carry in the home. Um, so all sorts of sort of systemic challenges. But one of the things that I found really interesting when we started our research was discovering that many countries around the world, five dozen of them, in fact, are doing a better job of ensuring that women have a voice in their parliaments than we are. So others have figured this out. And what we wanted to do with our Balanced Power Project was to pay attention to what they'd done so that we can adapt those strategies here in Canada. Yeah, I think we really need to pause there for a second and just clarify that you said five dozen, not five countries, five dozen countries are doing better for us in this area, that better than us in this area. Yeah, we're 61st. And when I share that news with audiences, as I have been doing over the last six weeks, there's an audible gasp from people in the room because we typically think our, of Canadians, we typically think of ourselves as leading on gender equality. And if I say, where do you think we rank? People guess, you know, 10th, 20th, 25th, maybe. And so learning that there are so many other countries that are doing a better job of them. And they're not just the predictable countries like the, you know, Norway and Sweden, but uh, Mexico is number four. We're 61st, Mexico's number four. Wow. So there that is a clear, a clear gap, wide gap between perception and reality here in Canada. Uh, let's talk then about how having a balance of power or why a balance of power is so critical. Why, how would that benefit not just women, but everybody? I'm so glad you referenced it because it does benefit everybody. What we know from decades of business and academic research is that when women are involved in decision-making in every arena, at every level, the decisions improve. And, you know, the research makes clear companies are more profitable. Their boards operate more ethically. Workplaces are happier. Research is more reliable. And that makes healthcare more effective. So we know this in a deep way. And I think that's why many other countries have prioritized ensuring that women are 
holding a balance of power in the corridors of of power, making decisions that affect the broader public. And when you think about the ways in which women's lives and bodies and brains are different from men's, it only makes sense that if you are governing on behalf of the whole population and half the population bleeds and and gives birth and gets pregnant and raises children and, you know, our lives are different in so many ways. So it's bananas that we haven't addressed this. When we look at the political parties within Canada, are there parties that are doing better than others as when it comes to gender parity and equity? Yes, in fact, there are. And one of the pieces of research that we did first was we interviewed party insiders to find out what, if anything, they were doing at the party level. And so some parties, uh, notably the, the NDP, have policies in place at every level to govern and inform how they go about recruiting and supporting candidates. Um, the Liberals have some, some policies in place. They're doing some of that. And um, the right of center parties not not as invested in that. And what's really interesting is that when you go on the Balance of Power website, there's a map on the homepage if you scroll down and you can scroll over every jurisdiction in the country and notice that in BC, for example, 44% of the MLAs are women. In Quebec, 46% are women. In Ontario and um, Alberta, uh, we're in the 30s. And in Saskatchewan and Newfoundland, they're 20%. So women in Saskatchewan and Newfoundland at the provincial level are only 20%, not 30 like we are federally. And that's partly a function of which party is in power. There's clearly a lack of political will then to to get this moving further ahead and down the road. But I think on the other side, there are a lack of females entering the arena, uh, probably for reasons of, you know, we know that they face a disproportionate amount of hatred online and things like that. So how do we get more women to be running in, in the different uh, spaces that they can? What I've found really interesting is that, as you say, certainly the the um, online hate or the harassment, and not all of it's online, we saw what happened to Christian Freeland last year. Some of it is making its way into their daily lives. That's certainly a deterrent for lots of women. But there are still many, many, many women who are willing and eager to run. And what we also know is that there are systemic barriers to their participation. So Ching Guyen, who's now the executive director of Equal Voice, was telling me just this week that she has heard from many women uh, about their journeys, including one who had to sell her house and move into a condo, both for security reasons and in order to afford to run. Because depending on the level you're running at, you might have to take six months off to campaign where you're not working and earning a salary, but you're aspiring to political office. And, you know, we already know about the pay gap that women face the over the course of our careers, how much less money we make because the pay gap that starts early is compounded. So those structural barriers are as significant, I think, as the as the concerns about hate. And again, looking internationally, Mexico and Sweden and Denmark and the Netherlands, they have not solved 
online hate, but they have 50% women or close to it in their legislatures. So yes, political will is still a significant uh, issue in terms of the choices that are made about how to support women and how to make sure that they have uh, space and voice in the first place. Is there a role that media should be playing uh, in this uh, discussion? I think journalists always have the opportunity to point out and draw attention to discrepancies in power. That's a central job of the news media is to call those in positions of authority to account and expect them to do better. You know, change doesn't just happen. It is made to happen. Women didn't get the vote. We didn't get maternity leave. We didn't get sexual assault laws without both women themselves advocating, but also without the media expressly asking questions and saying, you know, why is it that this is the status quo? Why are we not making this country more equitable, more democratic? Representation is fundamental to democracy. We have accepted for years, forever, really, that Newfoundland and, and BC need to be represented at the cabinet table. To have a, a legislature or a parliament today where 70% of the people making decisions are men, that's fundamentally not democratic when we know that although gender is, is not a binary, it's more complicated than that, the truth is that it still in no way makes sense that women are represented as poorly as we are now. Well, Sherry, I'm so happy that you are you are pushing for this in Canada. You actually have a website uh, where people can find out more information. Can you share the website and any social channels they might be able to follow you on to keep up or get involved? Yeah, Balance of Power is the is the website, balanceofpower.ca. Uh, our Twitter handle is balancepowerca. Um, you can also find us on LinkedIn and Informed Opinions, which is at Informed Ops, uh, is the organization that the Balance of Power campaign is a part of. So any of those channels uh, and following me, Sherry Graydon on LinkedIn is another way to stay up to date. All right. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today, Sherry. Thank you. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Call it crazy and yet, is there anything better than this? Life just couldn't be better than this. We all know that Dr. Google is not our friend, yet Canadians often flock to it to find answers to their most pressing health concerns. Thankfully, there is a better way, which is why I'm so happy to introduce you to a new sponsor on what she said, Care to Know. CareToKnow.ca is a free resource where Canadians receive the latest health information, updates on new and existing treatments, and advice from Canadian doctors via email. Over the next six months, Dr. Christine Palme, a family doctor with a special interest in women's health, preventative care, and education, will be joining me to break down some of our most common health challenges. Today, we're kicking things off with a closer look at Care to Know and how it can help you. Welcome to What She Said, Christine. 
Thank you, Candice, and thank you for having me. So can you tell me a little bit more about uh, your involvement with care to know and how it benefits Canadians? Absolutely. So I've been involved in care to know for several years, both as a listener initially and uh, subsequently as a presenter and a speaker. It's a free, as you mentioned, online healthcare resource where Canadians can get latest health information and updates on new and existing treatments. In the ever-evolving area of medicine, moment to moment things are changing. You know, I think you uh, verily adeptly said, uh, Dr. Google may not be your friend always. I always tell patients to browse at their own risk. So having a platform like care to know that is credible, it is evidence-based, and hosted by experts allows you to access information in a safe environment. You know, you don't necessarily have to browse with trepidation on our platform. It's funny. I just, you know, I have a small anecdote I'd love to share about Google. You know, when I, after the birth of my daughters, I think I was going through a little bit of postpartum and I was worried that everything was killing me and they would be left alone. You know, you can't control your thoughts. And I would be at the doctor's office constantly with one invented ailment or another. And finally, my family doctor said, please, I beg of you, just stay off of Google. <laughs> Absolutely. I actually wrote a prescription for a patient once saying, please stay off Google for two months for your mental health and perhaps mine too. Um, but you know, the reality is, is that access to information is a right. I use Google multiple times a day, um, but rabbit holes exist. And you know, the anxiety and the stress uh, when accessing information out of context can be really disastrous and, you know, in some cases dangerous, anything can be posted. Uh, so we really have to champion um, having websites that come with uh, not only credibility, but integrity, you know, presenting both sides of you from experts in the field. So can you tell me then what are some of the topics that the team of experts at Care to Know covers and how do you keep all of that information up to date and relevant? Science is, and medicine is just changing constantly. Moment to moment evolving. So we have a wonderful team that work around the clock, I think, uh, to keep up to date with the most novel treatments. And because uh, the guest speakers are experts, you know, these are people that have their hands in research and access to updated information. Topics thus far have included diabetes, you know, women's health, hormone replacement therapy, contraception, um, mental health, weight management, you know, hot topics that you see uh, across papers and certainly that I see regularly in my clinic. Upcoming, we have talks on dermatological issues, on irritable bowel syndrome, uh, but I like to encourage the listeners, you know, when you log on and hopefully um, start, start subscribing, you know, provide your input because we would like to use our readership and our, our viewership as a springboard to sort of guide what we develop in uh, future episodes. So can you tell me then what people can expect when they uh, create an account at care to know Absolutely. So if you log on to caretoknow.ca, you can subscribe. And uh, not only is it free, uh, but it is efficient and hassle-free because you get instantaneous information delivered to your email with reminders on upcoming podcasts, podcasts, information. Uh, Instagram handle is caretoknow underscore. And we really hope that it will be a regular engagement, you know, hot topics, hot off the press issues. And once again, you know, your input as well will guide as we expand our portfolio of topics covered. So from over the next five 
episodes after this one, we're going to be talking about some big topics. We're going to be talking about allergies and asthma, menopause, summer skincare, which is very important, diabetes and weight management, which I'm sure are going to, uh, honestly, just reading through some of the numbers ahead of time of what's coming up, this affects a lot of Canadians. So these are interviews are going to be super important. But of course, in the meantime, people can go to caretoknow.ca to find out a lot more, right? Absolutely. Information is empowerment, but misinformation can actually be dangerous. So uh, I'm really looking forward to having conversations with you in the next bit. All right, wonderful. So one more time, then, if you wouldn't mind sharing the website and social channel where people can keep up. Absolutely. Caretoknow.ca. Sign up, instantaneous emails to your inbox. Instagram handle is caretoknow underscore. Wonderful. We'll see you next month. See you soon. Are you ready? Get set. Cause it doesn't get better than this. No, it couldn't get better than being who you are. It's another busy week at Saturday Night at the Movies, so Ann Brody is here with all that's new in entertainment to keep us amused this week. What do you got for us this week, Ann? Well, let's start with The Lost King. Uh, Steve Coogan has a very tongue-in-cheek satirical wit, kind of biting, but he's written uh, basically the true story of a woman, a private citizen in England, who was a big fan of Richard III, who, as you know, was sort of a homely, wicked king who who murdered his nephews in the Tower of London. Well, she didn't believe it. Um, and she's with a couple of groups that are looking into Richard III's background. They don't believe it either. So she undertakes this massive project. She discovers herself where Richard III is actually buried. Not, he, he wasn't thrown in a river, which was what the story was. Um, he's under a parking lot <laughs> in a city. So she organizes local politicians to help her excavate the site. And it, it was a big news story when it happened a few years back. So you will know the story. But, you know, don't look it up. See the movie. Sally Hawkins is just brilliant as uh, Ms. Langley. Um, And it's a real thriller, an historical thriller. It's about a woman coming on top versus all the patriarchal people who didn't want her to succeed and dismissed her. So it's a it's a hooray story. Yeah. And, you know, that that sort of that theme applies across a lot of things anymore in this world so I'm sure women will definitely relate to the story and I like that it's fact-based too like true story that's that's amazing I was immediately uh enthralled with the trailer so I can't wait to see it where is it it's in theaters which is good for us uh Kiefer Sutherland is back tell me about Rabbit Hole well he's back in his wheelhouse um and it's on Paramount Plus uh, in Rabbit Hole. He plays a corporate espionage kind of a fellow. Uh, he has a very complicated life, difficult childhood that haunts him. Um, and I, I won't get into the details of it because it's really, it's quite complex. And it's shot in Toronto. You can recognize all kinds of places. So there's this complex intelligence operation that he put in place. 
and it, it just rockets out of the gate. And then the financial crimes unit of the FBI is after him. It's shot in Toronto, but it's not set in Toronto. So uh, a woman sort of joins forces with him. He drives out to their to his childhood home where his entire life path was set and secrets emerge. It is really good. I love it. I'm going to watch the whole deal when I get some time. All right. Amazing. Uh, and on to another sort of similar yeah. theme, I suppose, as yeah. Night Agent. That's on Netflix. Well, Gabriel Basso, I didn't know him. He's pretty interesting and he's not too hard on the eyes. He is definitely easy <laughs> on the eyes, Anne. Where did he come from? I've never even seen this guy before. I know, but, right? I know. Yeah. But the story's good. He plays an FBI agent who's delegated to the basement of the White House. His job is to answer the red telephone, which is about domestic terrorism and intelligence matters. Never rings. Months and months. Never rings. It rings one night. And a woman is in trouble. Again, I don't I, I, I don't want to reveal too much about it because it all unseals itself. It peels like an onion, just like rabbit hole, bit by bit by bit. And it really bears watching. Um, but just know that it is a far flung. It involves the crown prince of Yugoslavia. It involves uh, people living in Washington, private citizens. It's very good. I liked it a lot. And it is on Netflix. All right. And you were also really uh, fond of Filmmaker for the Prosecution. Okay. I knew that some Hollywood filmmakers were uh, in Germany uncovering the horrors of the camps, um, particularly George Stevens. But I did not know that he got some authors, the brothers, uh, uh, the Schulberg brothers. Uh, Sammy wrote What Makes... Uh, Sammy Bud wrote What Makes Sammy Run, which is really a dark history of Hollywood, dark story. So off they go to Germany and they find in salt mines, in haystacks, in spots all over the place, and some that the Russians found and handed to them to create a record of the horrors of the concentration camps and the German attempted extermination of the Jews. So this material was the basis for the trial at Nuremberg. Um, and as we all know, all these people were found guilty. Uh, most of them were hanged from the elites. Uh, Hitler was already dead by his own hand at that point. Um, and reparations were to be made. And But then the Cold War began and it was all sort of shoved aside. This film that they put together has never been seen in the U.S. theaters until now. Uh, under the title Nuremberg, it's lesson for today. So this is on a TVOD release, and it's well worth watching. It, it's another sort of thriller, <laughs> political thriller. All right. Uh, so sorry, TVOD for that one? Yes. All right, excellent. So you have all of these and a whole lot more uh, over on whatshesaidtalk.com, and you'll be back next week. I will. See you then. All right. Thanks so much, Ann. Get it off my desk. The lavender haze. I just must I just want to stay in the lavender haze. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 1059 The Region. 
Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Next up, Anne is back with an interview with Julian Assange's dad and brother, John and Gabriel Shipton. Julian is perhaps the most famous hacker in the world and remains in London's tough Belmarsh prison, awaiting possible extradition to the U.S. to face trial for espionage. Gentlemen, Julian Assange, your your son and your brother, uh, he is loaded with meaning, his very presence. Um, and of course, the U.S. is trying to extradite him. And the U.S., as we all know, has to be seen to win at everything. How does this complicate matters for you, Gabriel? The way I see it is that, you know, it, what is going on here, this Espionage Act, unprecedented uh, use of U.S. secrecy law uh, to go after a publisher, yeah. uh, to, to go after a journalist, uh, I, think, I think it is a, if, if this is dropped, if this, uh, if this prosecution is dropped, it is a win uh, for, for the US. It might not be a win for the national security uh, state, but it will be a win uh, for the very essence, you know, the essence of the US, which is, you know, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, namely the First Amendment. So uh, I, I think if you look at it in that way, it, it, can, be, it can be resolved. I mean, this is a, a prosecution um, that has emanated from uh, the Trump administration, uh, namely pushed by uh, Mike Pompeo when he was a CIA director. In, in his recent memoir, uh, Pompeo actually claimed credit uh, for this prosecution and claimed credit for uh, pressuring the Ecuadorians uh, to withdraw Julian's asylum uh, when he was inside the Ecuadorian embassy and allow the UK police in to uh, take him. Uh, so Julian spent seven years inside that embassy and the Ecuadorians gave him asylum uh, because of the concerns uh, that he would not be fairly treated if he were to end up in the United States. And it was under Mike Pompeo, uh, first as CIA director, then as Secretary of State, uh, that this political, uh, this political persecution uh, really uh, stepped it up a gear and went into sort of overdrive. So I think if you look at it through that lens and you see it as a, as a government overreach uh, of the worst kind uh, that emanated from this period in, in US history uh, that was known for these sorts of things, then a winding a back of this, I think, can be seen as a benefit uh, to society. Yes, absolutely. And you'd think Mike Pompeo would know the First Amendment. Um, John, you've been on a tireless journey to uh, free your son, to campaign for him, to campaign for freedom of speech. And I know it's been, judging from the documentary, it's been exhausting and frustrating and uh, maybe traumatizing for you. And you famously don't like media and you do, you have to do a lot of it. How do you settle yourself after, during this? I, look, having dinner with friends and meeting supporters who have committed their time, all you get in life is a little bit of time. Yeah. 
I think average is now about 80, that's 77 years from then. Yeah, it's it's an incredible documentary. Um, and I, I thought I knew a lot about the case, but I learned a lot more. So what happens if next year there's a new uh, party in the White House? Uh, um, to, to answer the roundup, you know, they've already won. It's now 14 years, so they've already chilled commentary. They've already oppressed yeah. the freedom of speech. They've oh. already uh, begun the process of truncating the First Amendment. Um, so I imagine uh, that Julian Assange and his persecution is a symbol whereby citizens and others can, other institutions of state that are concerned with the, with the capacity of the people in the United States to make fair comment. Hmm. Now, the First Amendment, the, just the other day, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr., did a tweet which says that <clears throat> goes to say America is free press. Without America, without a free press, there isn't an America, yeah. which I, I reckon unpacks properly to give a description of what could happen to the United States if this persecution or prosecution goes ahead. So it is entirely negative for every aspect of the United States, meaning fundamentally that it ends 250 years of the existence of the United States and brings into being some other entity which none of us outside the United States or within the United States look upon with, well, we all look upon with foreboding. <laughs> and, you know, if, if this all comes to bear, it will set an awful precedent worldwide. And, you know, the thugs will get away with, uh, with what they get away with and silencing people. And, you know, look what's happening in Florida. Um, it's very depressing. <laughs> so I really hope that Julian stays as strong as he can, and you too do as well, to fight the good fight because there are so many people behind you. As we learn, as I know from my friends and as I learn in the documentary, there's millions of, of supporters. And I guess that makes all of you hopeful and gives Julian some kind of comfort where he is. Would you agree? Yes. Um... Well, of course, you know, the worst thing about being in jail is that for the ease of administration of the jail, they separate you out and inculcate you into the jail's culture. Having supporters outside of the jail, making themselves known through cards, letters, uh, and, and, you know, protests and so on, uh, makes it possible for Julian's spirit to continue on a path of renewal and growth. As for the rest of us, 
taking upon ourselves, uh, using that word ourselves generically, all of us, a noble task which sits slightly above us, I think is health-giving for the society and ourselves. We contribute to ourselves and we make a fundamental con contribution to the health and growth of our communities, our families and our nations. Well said. Ah, that's amazing. How do you cope with being away from your little girl? Not well. She's very cross and her mummy's cross as well. Um, I, I, I have to uh, change the way I do things when we go back home. Gabrielle also has a, a daughter of nine. And at the airport, Rosa, in tears, wanted <laughs> to give something to Gabrielle. And all she could do was take off a sock and put, put, put it in his hand as a, as a constant momentum. Oh, I admire both of you so much for what you're doing. And when did you last speak to Julian? How is he? Uh, yesterday, he, uh, I had this phone, you know, Huawei phone. They don't work in the United States. So I eventually <laughs> girded up my loins and bought an iPhone. So we were able to speak on the phone yesterday. For oh, for heaven's sakes. Isn't that wild? I don't know about America. Anyway, um, I appreciate what you've done, both of you, so much. And, and I appreciate what you're putting yourselves through in doing something positive for Julian and for other members of the media who might be wondering how truthful they can be. And I thank you for that. But let me say about America, I embrace the, uh, the people of America anytime with my whole heart. We, we have nothing but support here. It's the certain institutions of state which have got a, a bit headstrong and need to be uh, reformed. Well, that's delicately put, yes. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck. And, and we're looking forward to a public screening of the film in Toronto at Hot Docs. Okay. See, so thank see, you so much. See, see you there, Anne. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye. My next guest, Amy Stewart, is the number one best-selling author of three novels, including Still Mine, Still Water, and Still Here. Shortlisted for the Arthur Ellis Best First Novel Award and winner of the 2011 Writers' Union of Canada Short Prose Competition, she's not only a talented author, but also the founder of Writerscape, an online community for hopeful and emerging writers. She joins me today to discuss her latest book, A Death at the Party. Welcome to What She Said, Amy. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to have you here because I was sent an advanced copy of this book. I started to read it. 
And immediately I was drawn in. I had to know who did it. Mm -hmm. This is one of the (laughs) best uh, novels I've read in regards to that. Because usually I can figure that out pretty close, you know, like maybe halfway through the book. I was near the end before I actually knew for sure with this one. (laughs) Well, that's good to hear. That's, that's, uh, That's a writer's, we love to hear that. Oh my gosh, so good. So you mentioned that A Death at the Party is meant to be an immersive and fast mm-hmm. read. So you can you tell me how you achieve this effect in your writing? You know, I think as a reader, I love immersive fast reads. Like there's such, a, it, it's almost like the equivalent of making a, a super quick dinner, right? That still tastes good. Like it's, every once in a while, you really need to throw one of those in. And so when I finished my first three novels, which were sort of linked, it was a bit of a series. I knew I wanted to write a standalone thriller, something that someone could pick up and really not want to put down. Um, and so I really honestly set out to do that. And I knew that that the tricks to that were just making sure that every chapter felt um, rich and propulsive and that all the characters were a mix of interesting and engaging, but also um, dark. Like every character had some kind of darkness lurking in the shadows. So, um, you know, with those ingredients, uh, uh, that was really what I was going for. But you never know until the book reach reaches readers hands whether you've accomplished that. Oh, mission accomplished, mission (laughs) accomplished. Such a good book. So the novel delves into the complex dynamics of female relationships, Mm -hmm. specifically mother daughter bonds. Mm -hmm. What inspired you to explore this theme? And what can writers expect from these relationships in the story? Well, I think that the great thing about <clears throat> familial relationships in particular is that they really give you, a, they're a very deep well in terms of, of content for a writer. Um, because, you, you know, mother-daughter relationships. So in, in my book, there's Nadine is the main character, and she has a very strong relationship with her mother, um, for whom she's throwing this birthday party, but also with her daughter. Um, so it's coming kind of at her from both directions. She's both playing the daughter and the mother to a daughter and feeling that from both sides and the contradictory elements of how you can um, set rules for your own kids that you don't want to be applied to you. Um, And I really just think with, with familial relationships, there's so much there to dive into the way we can love each other and yet resent each other um, the way the fierceness with which we'll protect each other. Um, that's always, you know, I'm a parent. I have three boys, but but I've always been very interested in that sense of just how far would you go to protect the people you love? I really identified with Nadine through this book, the way she puts on this brave front mm-hmm. uh, that mm-hmm. really resonated with mm-hmm. me. So you found yourself sort of pushing back against the notion that women mm-hmm. should maintain poise yes. and calmness. Tell me about that. So I really think that the key theme in this book is that is that notion that an expectation on women is to remain calm and poised, front-facing. We are always supposed to maintain our composure um, even when things are going awry in our lives, whether it's um, you know in that moment or on some larger scale in the background. And I, I really have spent a lot of time thinking about that. I think just in our current social culture, we've seen so many examples of that. And that's something that really intrigues me, not just the expectation, but also our ability 
how we are conditioned in many ways to sort of keep our cool even when things are going wrong. And so in this novel, Nadine is hosting a party for over 100 people at her house. And she has to, despite all this chaos in her life, she has to keep her composure. And that really, I wanted to see how far I could push that. I wanted to see just how how far I could push the idea that she will remain um, outwardly the hostess, even when, you know, there ends up uh, being a, a dead body at the party, <laughs> a death at the party. <laughs> oh, you just gave it all away. No, yes, I'm no, kidding. I'm you, you absolutely did not. All right. We only have a minute left here. So I want people obviously to keep up with you uh, and all that you're doing. Go get the book and, uh, you know, and obviously find out more about Writerscape as well. So can you share all that, please? Yes. So the best way to uh, reach me is on my website, which is amystewart.ca, Stewart with a U. So A-M-Y-S-T-U-A-R-T dot C-A. Um, my website has links to everything going on in my life, whether it's uh, events coming up, all my social media, um, copies, links, where to buy the book, all that good stuff and just information about me in general. So if you're looking for more information on A Death at the Party, um, that's the place to go. All right. I can't thank you enough for joining me. I I literally can't wait for your next book now. So thank oh, you so much, thank Amy. thank you. <laughs> I better get writing. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Previously on What She Said, we've touched upon the topic of food waste. Today, however, we delve into a particularly troubling aspect of this issue, the misuse and abuse of best before dates. Misunderstandings surrounding these dates contribute significantly to food waste, leading to unnecessary disposal of perfectly good food. To help us navigate this complex subject and explore ways to combat the problem, I've invited Lori Nickel, CEO of Second Harvest, to share her expertise and insights. So let's dive into this crucial conversation about food waste, best before dates, and the steps we can take to promote a more sustainable future. Welcome back, Lori. Good morning. So let's put it into context, the scale of food waste in Canada. Can you share some examples? Sure. So just across the entire supply chain, we lose up to about 58% of all the food that's produced for Canadians. And that includes imports. Now, some of that is avoidable and some of it is unavoidable. So unavoidable would be, you know, bones that people aren't eating or peels that people aren't eating. Uh, but what's avoidable is 11.2 million metric tons, which is the weight of, I believe, 95 CN towers. Like it's a, it's enormous amount of food that we're just throwing away. And it happens right across the supply chain. Most of it further up, to be honest, uh, manufacturing and processing. Um, not very much at retail, which I think a lot of people are surprised by. And, you know, we have some work to do at home at 21% in, in the home. Well, I think at home I, that, you know, I mentioned in the intro, those best before dates really throw people off. So let's talk about them. Um, 
does a best before date mean it's expired and bad? No, it's, you're right. They are wildly, wildly misunderstood. Best before does not mean bad after. So in Canada, there are only five foods that expire and we would make sure that nobody uses those foods after that expiry date. And those expiry foods are baby formula because the nutrients are in them degrade after that date. So babies need that food. Products like Ensure real, uh, Meal Replacements for Seniors, again, nutrient-based. Protein bars, because again, nutrient-based. So if you're running a race, you really need to have those nutrients. And the other two are by prescription only. One's for a feeding tube and one is diet related. So you don't really, most people don't have to worry about the, those two at all. Everything else is a best before date. And in Canada, what is required is that any food that has a shelf life of 90 days or less requires a best before date. Everything else doesn't. And all of them are put on by manufacturers. So it really is best. It's about the peak freshness of the food. But, you know, we're putting best before dates on food that lasts years. So why are they putting them on? Are they, are they mandated to put those on those foods or... Is it they just are randomly choosing to put these on? I, I don't even know why the reason would be. I think the reason that we would hear is that best before dates are about peak freshness. And so it's about their brand and they would like you to eat their food at the best nutrient dense, wonderful time of that food. And so that would, is what we would hear by, uh, by industry. It also, to be frank, it, it moves product. So people are buying it, you know, <laughs> It's just moving things. And it is a way of managing your product too, right? So you know when to move things in and out. So we were talking before we started this interview. You said there are exam other examples, other countries around the world that are doing it better. Can you share a couple of examples of that? Yeah. A really exciting coming out of the UK, uh, Tesco, which is a major grocer, are getting rid of best before dates on most of their items. Um, and in the Australia, they have shifted from a best before date to a use by date so that, you know, if there's a safety concern, because nobody's going to advocate eat food that's not safe. That's not what this is about. It's about don't throw food away. That's perfectly safe to eat. And so there are a couple of really cool things happening in different countries. And it's something that Canada really needs to look at, considering we are the worst, literally the worst in the world for throwing away food. That's a, that's shocking to me to actually hear that. I had no idea. So when we're at home then, if I'm going through my cupboards and I come across something like a can of beans, for example, it's past the best before date. How long do I really have before that food might expire? Well, it, it won't expire, but um, <laughs> you've got about two to five years. Okay, excellent. <laughs> that's good to know. Yeah, I mean, when you're looking at canned food, rice, pasta, dried beans, nuts, frozen food, you're... They don't really need a best before date. They last, they can last years. So even if you put a turkey in the freezer, it's good for a year. Um, you don't want to eat it any time after that. It, I mean, it'll be fine, safe to eat, but it just, you know, the, it will degrade and the texture will be wrong and it'll be weird. So you don't want to, but, but as soon as you throw something in the freezer, boom, you're good. And canned food is already, you know, it's canned, it's shelf-stable food. So I, I want to talk a little bit because, you know, I know this from you that to, to shop those, I get the 50% off. I feel like I'm giving away state secrets now. I don't want people to take my food from me, but <laughs> go to the grocery store and buy that 50% off food, right? I absolutely encourage everyone to buy 50% off food, especially now. 
I mean, food inflation is uh, higher than it's been in 40 years. 40 years. We all know when we go to the grocery store that we're buying less, which is actually a good thing in my opinion because we've always overpurchased. Um, and we have to really look at deals. And the, the sad thing is when you're low income, you're buying food that is typically the cheapest food is the least healthy food. And so if we can figure out a way to make sure that people are buying the healthiest food so they understand what a best before date means, it, it means they won't be throwing it away. Because we have been conditioned to believe in this country that a best before date is about safety. And it's not. It's about peak freshness. And so if I think it's about safety, and that's what I've been told, I'm going to throw that food away, even if I'm struggling to put food on my table, because I'm going to protect my family. So if we can just change some of these arbitrary dates and have like the federal government needs to intervene, CFIA needs to intervene so that we're throwing away less food so to ensure that, you know, it's, it's a climate change mitigator, keep it out of landfill and let Canadians get food and keep food and eat that food, especially right now when we're going through such hard economic times. Absolutely. And I know you're working hard. You're, you were just in Ottawa speaking with the government about this very issue. But I want people to be able to keep up with you and all that you do with Second Harvest. Absolutely incredible organization. So can you share where people can do that? You can go to the Second Harvest website, which is just secondharvest.ca. Or uh, I'm on LinkedIn. So if you go to Lori Nickel on LinkedIn, come and connect with me. I'm always throwing up some fun facts on there. Indeed you are. Thank you so much for joining me today, Lori. Thanks so much, Candice. That's it for What She Said this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com and be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. You can also catch me on TikTok at Candace Said. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to catch past episodes and extended podcasts. I'll be back next week with another What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com.